Please stand for the reading of the word from Philippians 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today. Uh, whether you're in the auditorium or you're joining us online. And uh, what a beautiful symbol. What a beautiful symbol of us trusting God as we partner with God to restore Abilene, as we provide food for hungry bellies. In first service, I was getting up to preach, and I looked down right here in the bag that was right here. It was full of sticky honey buns. I said, get behind me, Satan. It's a good Sunday. I'm grateful for Richard and Jana Beck for preaching last week. Um, that was an important word for our church to hear. So much so that if, if you were not here last week or you missed it, um, please go back uh, on YouTube and find that. It's an important word for our church to hear, why we are here. Um, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, for all of the good things that you've given us, for the chance to give out of our abundance to those who are in need. Father, I imagine the hungry bellies of children that will be filled this winter because of this church's generosity, and I give you thanks. And as we partner with you to restore Abilene and to restore the world, embolden our hearts and our lives, make us generous givers. Help us to see the work that you're doing and give us the courage to join you. There's nothing else we want to do with our lives more than that. And to that end, Father, now as we are gathered here together to hear a word from you, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. So we're jumping back to Philippians, and I know we spent the fall there walking through that book, thinking about what Paul is trying to say to that church in Philippi, and, and I... I, we had to just come back. We had to, to do uh, chapter 4 and finish it out. And, and, and think of this as, as an epilogue or, or maybe an encore, however you want to think about it. But we're not done hearing a word from what Paul has to say uh, to that church. Because this is important because Paul is going to tell you a secret. And it's not a, a secret of like hidden knowledge as much as it is a tip. And what Paul is going to tell us today is very important because he's going to tell us how to get through it. I was 28 years old. I'd been married for about six or seven months, and my wife and I were having a problem. The problem was with toothpaste because one of us was gently, progressively squeezing our way up the tube keeping everything nice and clean. The other of us was grabbing the tube in the middle like a Neanderthal and making a mess of everything. And this was a problem. Now, I got to tell you, the problem was not toothpaste. The problem is we were figuring out how to communicate with one another. We were figuring out how to talk with one another. We were figuring out how to, how to do life together in the same place. The problem wasn't the toothpaste, even though one of us was a barbarian grabbing it like a... 
I was one of those people. Not telling you which one. And it was, it was Richard Beck that gave me the tip. I, I didn't know him at the time. I was just reading his blog like the rest of us and kind of gleaning his wisdom when he said, just buy two tubes of toothpaste. And to this day, if you were going to go in my bathroom, you would find two tubes of toothpaste. It was a tip. It made things easier. How to get through it. And that's a mild case of what Paul wants to tell us. Because perspective and time gives us the distance to understand what it's going to mean in the end. Have no doubt. We have been through an incredibly difficult season as a culture, as a community, as a church. This has been a hard time. When you look in the mirror, there's more gray hairs on your head than there used to be, or just less hair in general. It's been a more stressful time. Your body is keeping that score. And it's a time like this where Paul wants to give you the secret. He wants to give you a way through it all. You see, Paul is writing through prison, uh, writing from prison. It's possibly in Ephesus. It might be in Rome. Um, and if it is in Rome, this is where he's going to die. So how can he say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? Because if you take this verse out of context, it can be damaging to another person's faith. If you take this verse out of context and you just throw it blithely around without understanding where Paul is when he writes it, then you're going to miss what Paul is trying to say. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Worrying is, is fretting about things that you cannot control. And so Paul's response is, instead of worry, pray. Learn to trust God. Because see, hope rides the same bus as worry. Hope rides the same bus as worry. Both are responses to your current and future environment, but they have very different results. And Jesus asked the question, who by worrying has added a day to our lives? So we as disciples choose hope over worry. We as disciples choose prayer over worry. You can't control everything. And that's the prayer we pray together every Sunday when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. Part of what we're asking is for God to change our circumstance. Part of what we're asking is for God to enter into this world and do something that only God can do to make our lives different. But the second half of that prayer is not just God change our circumstance, but also that God changes us to shape us and to mold us and to refine us. But I want to tell you, Paul's secret. I want to tell you how to get through it. It was a couple of years ago, I was uh, back in um, San Jose, and I was, I was getting a haircut, and we were just having that chatter that you have when someone cuts your hair, and, and it was right after New Year's, and, and, and she said, uh, do you have any resolutions? What's your resolutions? And so I answered what mine were, and then I asked her, what about you? What are your resolutions? And she said an answer that has stuck with me for a long time. She said, to be a better and more true to myself, me. And I thought, oh, that's good. <laughs> to be a better and more truth to myself, me. Me. 
That was a great answer. But the more I thought about it, I have no idea what it means. And there are all sorts of things you can do to improve yourself. You can lose some weight. You can join a gym. You can learn something new. You can stop doing something that's unhealthy. And all those things are great, but those things cannot save you. For a Christian, we don't follow the path of self-improvement as a means of salvation. That is sinister idolatry. We follow the path of Jesus. I just got to go home and spend some time in, in Denver and, and there's a local kind of hero in Denver that a lot of people know about. His name is Bill Phillips. And he's kind of an exercise nut. He's a trainer for the Denver Broncos. He wrote a couple books on exercise. And um, he's gone through a really hard year. This is Bill Phillips before in 2019. And then Bill uh, caught COVID, lost 70 pounds, and is barely walking now. He went through something that nearly took his life, and he's still recovering. And he reflected that he may not get back to the peak performance from before, and that the journey, however, was not a total loss. He learned something when COVID took away his vitality. He learned the secret, that literally the next breath he took, as painful and labored as it was, the next step he took as difficult as it could be was a gift and he could be grateful for it. This is a picture of Abraham Lincoln. Now, if you don't know anything about history, Abraham Lincoln was a president of the United States who um, was president during the Civil War. This is his picture in 1860 and then that's his picture in 1865. Now, admittedly, um, there's a little bit of lighting that's causing shadowing there and back then, you know, photography was kind of a new phenomenon, and so um, there's a little bit of an exaggeration between those photos. But it is clear to see what the four years of his presidency did to him. The second shot is taken about two months before he died. And every step that he took as a leader, every, every decision that he made to preserve unity, every, every cost and responsibility and stress that he bore on his shoulders... He learned the secret that although it felt like the weight of the world was on his shoulders, the unity of the nation, that through Christ he would have the strength not to do all things, but just to do the next thing. I want to tell you about my friend Derek. Uh, Derek was driving one night and had an accident. And it severed his um, spine at his fourth lumbar vertebrae. And through the course of his recovery, he became hooked on opioids. And it ended up ruining his marriage. It cleaved him from his family. And it drove him to homelessness. Derek was in a skilled nursing facility when I met him. He was getting um, weaned off his drug addiction. And he was healing from the untreated bed sores that his chair, his wheelchair, had caused while he was homeless. He was also healing from two broken legs, uh, that he had broke them himself so that he could stay in the skilled nurse, nursing facility longer because he knew it was better there than it was on the street. Derek, through his friend Andrew, began coming to church at the church that I was attending, and, and he began falling in love with Jesus. And I have no doubt, he had so much anger and pain 
He had so much resentment to God and to the world for what had happened to him. But Derek gave his life to God, and I baptized him in the shower of a stall in that facility. Derek died last year. But I want to tell you, he didn't die alone. And that he learned the secret. He knew what it was to live in abundance and to live in desolation and to live with the in-between. I can tell you um, that I can do all things through Christ did not mean that he would ever walk again. That he wouldn't live in a constant itch to use opioids again. But it did give him the courage to do the next thing. And when he died... He was grateful for the things he had. He had reconciliation with his son. He had peace with his past. Paul says, I want to tell you the secret of contentment. Contentment is not in in money, but it feels deceptively like it is. I didn't grow up poor. My parents had two teacher salaries that was able to keep food on the table. Um, And so I never grew up knowing what it was like to feel hungry. But I also knew what it was like not to have everything that I wanted. Most of us grew up in that kind of environment. And studies will show you that money can actually buy happiness up until a point. A few years ago, that magic number was like about $73,000, $74,000. If your salary is going up, if you're below that, then actually your life gets incrementally better to the point where it can make you happier. But after that point, more salary does not equate to more happiness. And so it's, it's deceptive. Money, um, contentment is not in money, but it feels like it is. Contentment is not in career. Contentment is not in climbing the ladder. And there's nothing wrong with striving to do the best you can with what you have, to use the gifts that God has given you to better the world and serve your neighbor. There's nothing wrong with that. But do not be confused. You will not find contentment at the top of the ladder. In fact, when you get to the top, you find out how little is really there. It's so easy to confuse comfort or abundance with contentment. You may not be able to tell if you have contentment or not until you, until you lose something. It's kind of like when we were budgeting with two incomes and no kids. I had no idea if I was content or not because I didn't I was in a space where I had to say no to myself. And most of the people don't know this secret. Most people don't know this secret. And Paul learned the secret. Whether his head was on a feather pillow in Lydia's house or on the hard stone floor of the jailer's cell, whether sickness or health, whether capable or not, whether hungry or filled, Bill Phillips learned the secret, whether he was able to run a marathon or just climb his stairs. My friend Derek learned the secret, uh, whether he was living on the street or loved in a church, that with Christ, you can do the next hard thing. God calls us to glory in his son, calls us to sacrificial living, calls us uh, to further refinement. C.S. Lewis said, you come of the Lord Adam and Lady Eve, and that is enough to both to is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on the earth. Be content. 
Abundant contentment when it happens is the gift you didn't realize you wanted, but you're so glad it's there. I'm grateful for the generosity of this church giving food to those in need. And it's, it's, it's a symbol. It's like our table, that we will place our trust in God to provide abundantly. Giving like we do today is an act of defiance. It's an act of rebellion against the narratives that tell us we must hoard our resources to survive the next hard thing. It teaches us that open and giving palms have more power than closed fists. It teaches us that the metric of our contentedness is not the balance of our bank account or the contents of our freezer, but the secret that changes the world. The metric is Christ. And we can do the next hard thing together with him. And that is all, that is all you have to do. Just do the next hard thing. Just take the next step. Because you can do that in Christ. He will give you strength. We're going to spend some time in our service now to take communion. Uh, If you picked it up in the back, that's great. If you didn't pick it up, there are going to be stations on either side of the auditorium where you can go and uh, receive communion. But I want to urge you to do something a little bit different today. As you take communion, take it with someone else. If you're here with your family, take it with your family. If you're here with a friend, take it with your friend. But uh, open our eyes, Highland. Look who's around you and invite someone to take communion with you. Whether you go up to these tables or or on the sides, uh, let's turn our hearts toward communion. This is also a chance for you to write prayers uh, for the people, and you can leave those. Our elders and ministers will be praying. Let's take communion together after we pray. Heavenly Father, for the goodness that you have given us, we give you thanks. For the table that opens our eyes to be generous to others. For the abundance of contentedness that you've provided in our lives. Teach us the secret that we can do all things through Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.